Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to open up uh, to the book of Second Chronicles. Um, I know you probably have lots of notes there already, so try to find a few extra, a little extra space this morning to write in. Second Chronicles chapter 20 is where we're going to be. You know, if you read the Bible and you start from beginning to end, the most common theme, the most common metaphor that you see in the, in the Bible's description of life is that of war. It's a battle. It's fighting. There's war. From beginning to end, you see that. Um, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. It's the first war mentioned in your Bible. It's uh, a reference to the fall of Satan and the war in heaven cast to the earth. Uh, Genesis 3, you have Satan in the garden. You have the warring for man's heart in the garden. Man gets kicked out of the garden. Uh, God erects a nation, Israel. Calls him to go into the promised land. There's war going in against the Canaanites and the Ammonites and the Midianites and, you know, Cellulites and all these other people that are in there. Uh, they were a really large tribe back then, but um, you just see all this warring going on uh, in the Bible. Uh, you get to the New Testament and you have things like, uh, you know, Paul says, put on the armor of God that you might resist the schemes of the devil. Um, he says, uh, though we live in this war, we do not war according to the world that our weapons are divinely powerful. Um, Paul says, fight the good fight of faith, right? So you see this theme of battle and struggle and war from beginning to end in your Bible. Anybody that tries to tell you that life is about health, wealth, and good times, and that's what God wants you to have, I'm not sure what book they're reading, but they're not reading this book. Uh, I didn't see that in the prophets. I didn't see that in the disciples. I, for darn sure, didn't see that in the life of Jesus. I don't see that in the early church. I don't see that in the persecuted church today. So anybody that tries to give you some message of what God wants you to have, you go ahead and just turn that baby off and, and, uh, and just say, Sayonara, dude, because you're not preaching the gospel. Paul calls that another gospel, a heteros gospel. And so much so that that is another gospel that he even says that anybody that preaches another gospel to you, let them be accursed. See, because life is about being conformed into the image of Christ. And so what kind of a life does a person have to have to be conformed into the image of Christ? I mean, what, what does it take to take my kingdom, my righteousness, my glory that I have, and now I have to exchange it for his kingdom, his righteousness, and his glory? What kind of a life do I have to go through in order to finally make that exchange? You think it's a life of comfort? Of ease? Not at all. It's a life at times that will be comfortable and easy, but it's a life that's driven through episodes and seasons of struggle and difficulty and pain. It's a war. It's a battle that every one of us fight. And anybody that wants the mature Christian life, they want mature spirituality. It's not something that comes easy. Amen? Does it come easy? It does not come easy. It's something that just takes time and discipline and effort in these things um, where I have to just do business with God on a regular basis, and it takes effort. Well, if you look in Second Chronicles chapter 20, uh, you're going to see a great guy. His name is Jehoshaphat. Uh, he's one of the great kings. I don't know why we don't name our kids Jehoshaphat anymore, uh, but uh, do it. Name your next boy Jehoshaphat. He'll hate you, but it's a great name. All right, And uh, Jehoshaphat, uh, he's a guy that just got through reforming the nation. 
They had come out of all kinds of idolatry and stuff. He comes in. He's a good king. He comes in. He reforms the nation. And, uh, and now there's some, some, some people, enemies, that are about to make war with Jehoshaphat and the little tribe of Judah. Now, just 30 seconds here. Bit of a history lesson. Israel was divided into two nations. Right after Solomon, you had Jeroboam and Rehoboam divide the nation. Ten nations to the north. Judah and Benjamin inside of Judah to the south. Judah was God's appointed tribe that would bear the seed of the promised Messiah, right? So God's hand was on Judah. They were the promised tribe that would bear the seed of Messiah. So God would always protect Judah. So if you want a fascinating study to do on your own sometime, go read the Kings in the book of First and Second Kings, creative title. Go read the book of books of 1st and 2nd Kings and read about the kings of Judah and look at the good ones and look at the bad ones and I think you'll be you'll uh, find it fascinating when you see some of the common themes of how God responded to the faithful kings and how God responded to the wicked kings well Jehoshaphat is a good king because what he doesn't do is Jehoshaphat doesn't try to go outside of God to try to fit something in to make things work right He's a guy that does it God's way. Um, you know, I was thinking through this, and I remember a lesson. My dad was a career naval officer, so he always had these life lessons for me, you know, whenever I'd mess up. Son, you know what this teaches you, don't you? Uh, well, I had one. I remember when I was, I was 19, and uh, my dad had bought me. Actually, I was 20. My dad had bought me uh, this really great. It was a 1978 Camaro, and, uh, man, it was clean. I loved it. Put a 350 motor in that thing. Had the cylinders bored out. I mean, it was sweet. Got eight tickets in two years. It was awesome. All right, just a great, great car. Um, and it was black, you know. And man, I just, I was just cool. I was real cool. Um, anyway, one day uh, I'm, I'm driving down uh, University Drive in Denton, Texas, and uh, just going down University about 40 miles an hour, just driving along. And um, I'll confess it on tape really great looking girl passes me by the other way right and she waved I, at least I'm telling myself that still I could have sworn that she waved and I was you know of course she waved so I turned back like any guy would do I'm like looking to see if she's like turning back at me and I'm like waving and uh, there was a taxi stop at a dead stop in front of me waiting to turn into the 7-Eleven what he's doing that for I have no idea and uh, anyway, moral of the story is, I mean, I plowed into him at 40 miles an hour. And um, his, he wasn't hurt. His, his bumper, it's kind of funny, his bumper all of a sudden is dragging on the ground. And on the back of his windshield it said, your safety is our business. It was just the funniest thing. So, but my front end was jacked up. All of a sudden, here's my car. My hood looks like a V. My front end is bent. My qu- right quarter panel is messed up. And I'm driving home, like, looking through the hood, because my motor's still okay, so I drive it home. Well, I, I didn't have any money to buy another car, so I called AAA Junkyard or whatever up in Crum, Texas, and I just, uh, I said, hey, listen, I got a 78 Camaro. Uh, I need a front end, a right quarter panel, and a hood. And the guy says, well, 78, huh? I said, all I got is a 76 front end and right quarter panel so sorry I can't help you and I said no 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 hold on I said you got a 76 he goes yeah I said well that'll probably work 
He goes, no, you should probably get a 78. And I said, well, how much is that? He goes, 200 bucks. I said, I'll be right there. So I go down and get the 76 front end and right quarter panel, pick it up. It's blue. So I got four cans of black spray can, you know, paint. Got one of my best buddies, and we spent an entire Saturday unbolting every bolt to get my jacked-up front end off of my car. Had a bucket of about 150 bolts right here, and uh, got the whole thing off. So now we get the 76 front end, right? And uh, just uh, get that thing on there, line those babies up, and stick a, a bolt there and over here. And everywhere we could find a hole, we stuck a bolt in, all right? And when we were done, I, there wasn't another hole to be found. And I had 75 bolts left in the bucket. I don't know where they could possibly go, but it's probably made for a 76 front end, see? Not a 78 front end. So, anyway, it was, it was good. I, mean, I got the baby on there and it looked good. Spray painted the baby down. About a month later, I got a flat on my front left. So I thought, hey, no big deal. Get my jack like I've done the other 13 times I got flat tires. And I start jacking it up, right? And I'm going, and then I hear, and I'm thinking, that's probably just the jack. I realize, oh my gosh, these bolts are about to snap. Well, I just had to get it up about that much far, farther up. So I thought, I can do this. So I started, and all of a sudden, it was the loudest noise. This, I heard this, boom, just pop. And my whole front end, these bolts snap, and they're falling on the ground. And my front end just goes, boom. And uh, that was it. That was, the, that was the last day of my car, right there. I'm driving that thing back, and it's like fire shooting off the concrete. Well, I get home, and my, my dad comes out. And he looks at the car, and I won't tell you what he said. Um, uh, but then he says, son, he said, let me tell you something. And here's, here's his life lesson. He said, some things in life just don't go together. Like a 76 front end on a 78 Camaro. He said, you need to learn a lesson and realize that some things just don't go together. Yeah, all right, Dad, can I have 200 bucks? I need another front end. Uh, but I just remember that. Some things don't go together. And, you know, uh, Martin Seligman, the psychologist, and he wrote a piece in Psychology Today, and he said that the baby boom generation suffers depression 10 times, not 10% higher, but 10 times higher depression than the generation before them. And the generation today, uh, after the baby boom generation, is argued that they're going to suffer even maybe 10 times higher than the baby boom generation. Um, and, he, and, he, and, he get, and he talks about why that is. And the point of his article was because uh, today the modern world is seeking so hard to fill themselves with things that don't fit. That we actually think that certain things are going to finally meet our satisfactions, and they don't. And the reason is because we live in this what's called a consumer culture. And a consumer culture is driven by one thing mainly. You know what that is? A consumer culture is driven by discontentment. They create discontentment in order to create the cycle of consumerism. See how that works? So if I can tell you, I can't believe you're living without this thing, 
and then you get it, then I get to tell you what. How can you keep living with this thing? Have you not seen the new options? I mean, this thing's got more memory. It does? It does. How can you live without that? I can't. Well, get it. See? And now all of a sudden, we create the spirit of discontentment. And it's because we, we view life wrongly. We don't realize what it is about life that we need in order to fill the satisfied life. Uh, Rick Warren's book, so many people have said, how in the world did Rick Warren, The Purpose Driven Life, how did he sell so many millions of copies on a book that was so simple? Right? I mean, when y'all read that book, how many of y'all read that book? Bunch of you. Pretty simple book, wasn't it? I mean, the way he put it together was, you know, okay, 40 days and all that was fine. But there was nothing in there that was deeply profound. He was just trying to show you how to fulfill your purpose in this book. And part of that was your role in the body of Christ. Well, essentially, the Bible takes a high view of the corporate nature of the body. That to fulfill life purpose, to fill yourself with the right things, it has to exist, not individually, but you have to be part of the corporate uh, identity. When you look at the, 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 the scriptures, you'll see that God continually works through the community of believers, not simply individuals. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, take Moses, for instance. Moses continually brings the nation together to tell them what God has said. He takes them through the Red Sea together. They enter, well, without Moses later, they enter into the Promised Land together as a nation. Uh, Elijah. Remember Elijah when he's going up against the prophets of Baal? For seven years, the nation worshipped the prophets of Baal. Elijah comes back on the scene. There's a famine in the land. And Elijah says, okay, that's it. We're going to have a showdown. It's going to be me all by myself against the 450 prophets of Baal. It is the, it's going to be a showdown at the OK Corral. Elijah against 450 prophets. Remember? But Elijah says, before we do this, I want something. Do you remember what he, what he wanted? He wanted the entire nation to be there to watch. He wanted the corporate structure of Israel, the entire body of God's chosen people to be there so they could witness the impotence and the failure of the prophets of Baal. And if you ever want to look at it, it's a great story. First, First Kings 17 and 18 is where the story is. It's a great story. And what you see, essentially, is that Elijah wants the entire nation to see something. And so if you remember the test, it was this. He tells them, you guys make an altar, and I'll make an altar. You put an offering on it, I'll put an offering on it. And then we will both call down fire from heaven. And whosoever God can shoot fire down from heaven, this God is the true God. And I love the response of the people of Israel. They go, this is a good, this is a good plan. And the reason it was a good plan is because they needed to see the power of God at work in order to follow Him. See? And so for the first three hours, the prophets of Baal are crying out, Oh, Baal, shoot fire down from heaven. Right? The irony is, Baal is the god of fire. That's why Elijah chose that test. Okay, prophets of fire, let's go ahead and have a fire test. So for three hours, they're crying out, Oh, Baal, uh, show yourself to us. Shoot fire from heaven. Consume this offering. Nothing's happening. So Elijah gets real compassionate and tender and starts mocking them. Remember? 
He says, maybe you should cry louder. Maybe your God is asleep. Maybe he's on vacation. Uh, maybe he's busy. Scream louder. And so they start crying louder, dancing around their, 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 their offering, dancing around for three more hours. Six hours go by, nothing. And in the last three hours, they get their knives and their spears, remember? And they start dancing around and they're cutting each other, offering their own blood to, these, to, to Baal. And at the end of nine hours, it says, for the gods of, for the gods of, the, of Baal um, di, uh, said nothing. There was no response. So then Elijah comes up and he makes sure that the entire nation sees this. And he looks up to the heavens and he cries out, O oh Lord, my God. He says, cast down fire. And all of a sudden, fire shoots out of heaven. Spielberg could have a field day on this deal. Fire shoots out of heaven, comes down and consumes the offering, um, everything in it. And at that point it says, and the people of Israel fell prostrate and worshipped. Isn't that good? As a corporate group, they saw the power of God at work and they fell down and they worshipped. See, and that's what God wants from beginning all the way to the end. He wants worship from the community. Not just the individual, you see. Uh, one of the great things about the Protestant Reformation that was in the 16th century, one of the great things that guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin um, and Philip Melanchthon and John Knox, one of the great things those guys did is they took this book and they gave it to you. And they said, no, no, this is yours. This is written for you. And they gave you an individual relationship with God. That you could sit down and you could spend time in the Scriptures and it's you and God and you don't need a mediator between the two of you. Now, that's a good thing that they did that. That you can go to your local Starbucks and enjoy God with your tall two-pump cinnamon no-whip mocha, which is the best drink you could have there. But anyway, but you can spend time with God right there one-on-one, -on -one, okay? The downside of that is it becomes very easy for you to be disconnected from the active involvement in the body. That's the downside of, of in a sense, Protestantism. Is you can become very disconnected where you become kind of the Sunday attender, but when it comes to the active involvement and in the, in the life of the body, um, community groups, the life of the body, it's very easy to become disconnected from that because you're under, the men, you're under the mentality of, I don't need that to be a Christian. All I need is me and God, and I can go to the mountains, I can go wherever I want, take my Bible, and I'm okay. Now, technically speaking, that's true. But to have a thriving, deep relationship with God, you have to have the body. That's how God has designed it. So, from early on, you see that this is a life of struggle and battle and war, and the body is required for growth and for you to be able to stand strong. And that's what happens. Look in verse 1. He says, after this, meaning the reforms, the Moabites, the Ammonites... But some of the Moonites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. And some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you. You guys ever felt that? Ever felt like that? A vast army is coming against you? And you feel like you're flanked on every side? And you wonder, what in the world am I going to do? I, there's no one I can talk to. There's nothing I can do. I just feel like there's this vast army coming against me. And that was Jehoshaphat and the people. And you know what he does? The first thing he does... He says, verse 3, Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. 
the first thing he does. He doesn't get on the phone. He doesn't get a team of people around him. The first thing he does is he hits his knees and he inquires of the Lord and he rests, you see. But then look what happens. He inquires of the Lord and then he proclaims a fast for all of Judah. It is time for worship. Through the fire, through the struggle, it's a time for worship. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. See it? There it is again. The people came together. Remember when I was in youth group, I didn't get saved until my senior year in high school. So I don't really really remember anything from youth groups um, prior to 17 years of age. But I do remember this. I went to this like camp thing and they had a camp speaker and there was about 40 of us. And he had this big raging bonfire going on and we're all outside singing Kumbaya or something. And we have these benches all the way around, you know, in the fire. And uh, we're just sitting there, Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. Right? Which is about what our voices sounded like at that age. Well, we get done singing and he gets up there and he, you know, go, he starts talking and he reaches in there and he grabs this, this board and it was raging with, you know, fire. And he kind of pitches it to the side. And he starts talking. What he's, I don't even remember what he talked about. I just remember he was talking. Just talking. Well, I do remember this. When he got done, he goes over and he picks up the board that he threw over on the side. And he picks this thing up and he holds it up. And it's charred. And it's burned out. And he looks at us and he says, Why is this bonfire still raging? And it was because... It was feeding off of all of the wood. All of the wood was feeding off of itself. So this board would feed, this board would feed, this board, and all the fire was raging. He said, why is this burned out? And he said, this one's burned out because it's separate from all the other wood. I just remember that. It always stayed with me, that illustration that he gave. And it wasn't until later that I realized that that's the importance of the body of Christ, of corporate community worship of community groups, of being actively involved. Because it doesn't matter how much willpower we have or how much strength we think we have, you cannot do it alone. The spiritual life is not something that's done by discipline merely. Uh, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, Paul says, uh, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. See, left to myself, uh, I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm going to be a charred out piece of wood in time. I don't have the strength to maintain the spiritual life by myself. I need my brothers and my sisters. I need to be able to come together on a Sunday and enjoy worship together with you guys. Y'all need that. I need community groups. When I teach, I need to try to enter into the lives of people that I teach because I need that corporate nature in order to fuel what's in me. Uh, Paul tells Timothy... In the last letter, 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy this. Paul knew he was going to his death pretty soon, so he writes his final letter to Timothy. And he says to Timothy, fan, um, he said, fan the flame of faith that God has given you. You've got to fan it, Timothy. You've got to be active. You can't be a passive recipient and think that you're going to simply have a strong spiritual life. You've got to be active. You've got to put yourself on the line, you see. And you've got to do it in a corporate way. Uh, I remember, I think I may have told you guys this story. The first time I experienced that verse about fanning the flame of my faith that God put in me, 
It was when, after about two years, I resisted doing this. But the church I was at at the time, um, a guy named Greg Bott, big old six foot eight basketball player from Washington, he kind of challenges me to do this thing called Evangelism Explosion. It was just an evangelism program we had at our church, and it was a deal where you basically went door to door, which is the most frightening thing you could possibly do in your life, if you can just imagine. Just knocking on a stranger's door. I want to talk to them about Jesus. Uh, there's nothing scarier than that. Um, if you don't believe me, go do it. And I remember thinking, I don't want to do this. You're going to do it. I don't want to do it. You're going to do it. Okay. And so you had a few weeks of training and getting your outline down and all this. And I, I, I remember. Uh, it was one of the most exciting semesters of my life. It really was. Because beforehand, we'd pray before we would go to the first door. And I remember every time I would pray... It was the one time in the week I prayed a really long time because I was trying to kill time. I wanted to go as few doors as possible. And we'd go up there and knock on the door, and then you just, you just are praying that they're in Cancun. You know? <laughs> Jesus, I pray that they have a time of rest in Cancun. Right? But, you know, they're home. They open the door, and they're nice at first. Hi. Hi. My name is Walter, and we're from so-and-so church, talking to people about spiritual things. Wonder if we could just have a few minutes of your time. No, thank you. <clears throat> okay, next door. Boy, what an exciting life. But the few times you got in, and then you talked. And I remember the first girl, I think her name was Caroline, first girl I remember, when I got to the part on the outline where I said, have you ever accepted this free gift that God offers all men? And she said no, and then I said, "Would you like to? Would you? Would you let me pray with you that you might receive this free gift of eternal life?" And she said, "Yes." And I, I, I didn't hear. Her. I was stunned. It's like trying to serve, you know, sell a Kirby vacuum cleaner. The first time someone says yes, you got to be like, "What? You didn't just say yes, did you?" And I go, "You said yes, yeah." Oh, okay, okay. So now I'm trying to access that part of the prayer, which I didn't remember. I'm like, Jesus, she loves you. Help her to follow you. Amen. That was about it, you know. But I remember when I left that house, of these, the two people, you always go with a girl and a guy. You always have a girl with you because they won't let three guys at the door inside your house. You've got to have you a cute little, you know, girl right there that looks kind of, you know. And, uh, man, I was on fire. Because I was, I was fanning the flame in a, in, a, in a group, a corporate community, learning evangelism through my church. And it stirred my faith. Um, it was incredible. Best year of my life was 1992. Nine months with 18 guys, four mornings a week at 5.30 and 6 a.m., going through, through the entire Bible verse by verse through a guy discipling us, doing evangelism explosion, leading a ministry, Leading a Bible study at home. I was a substitute teacher. You had to have a part-time job, and you couldn't date for the entire year. I mean, now you give that up front, and most guys go, that stinks. What's that about? But I went in there, and I mean, there was no girls, no distractions. It was just all Bible four mornings a week. It was, you know, I, I made $600 a month. Uh, my apartment was 335 bucks a month. 
I split it with my roommate. We paid one sixty-seven fifty apiece. The good old days. Had a little extra money, you know, to go order a pizza here and there. But it was a simple life. Had a beat-up '78 Camaro by that time, and it was it was just, you know, it was a simple life back then. And let me tell you, my faith was so hot then because it was simple and it was a body of guys together and we were we were part of the same cause and you know what the loneliest times of my christian life have been the loneliest times of my christian life is when i've allowed myself to become myself to become disconnected and just to kind of do my own thing and not be connected with the life of the body see that's a lonely place and that's when all of a sudden uh, your faith becomes stale. You feel like you're in a desert. You feel like you're dry. Y'all ever been there? It just, you're like, your faith just seems very stale. And it's because you're not fanning the flame in the, in the, within the body. See? Well, I love what they say here. Uh, they pray. Jehoshaphat prays. I'm just going to show you one part of his prayer in verse 12. Look what he says here. He says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. That's a great prayer, by the way. We have no power. That's the recognition of your own inability to foster your spiritual life. But he says this, But our eyes are upon you. What a great prayer. Y'all ever feel like that? It's like you, you want to be a part. You want to do something. You're not quite sure what to do. My eyes are upon you, Lord. I want to be involved, but I don't, I, I don't know what to do. See? That's all too often the body of Christ. Well, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that Rock Point is designed to, to try to meet you on every level. We've got equipping and developing classes and all of these things to get you integrated into the church, into the body, serving, being a part of the body here. Uh, there's no reason anybody here can't fan the flame in their life to stir up their faith, to feel like they're fulfilling this purpose that God has within the local body, within the local church. Um, Jesus, Jesus said this in Matthew 16. The first time you see the word church is in Matthew 16. Jesus just gets through teaching on two separate occasions, over nine, uh, feeding over 9,000 people. And you remember how he fed them? He told the disciples to get the baskets and the loaves and the fish. And you'd have to go to Jesus. And then suddenly, whoa, they're right there. And then they'd go out and they'd feed everybody. And as soon as the basket was empty, they'd come back to Jesus and say, um, I'm out of fish. Oh. And you'd go back and you feed them. And he had them for 9,000 people. He had 12 guys go out and back, out and back, out and back for hours and hours. And while they're out there, there's no doubt that these people were thinking, where in the world is all of this fish and all of this bread coming from? How is this guy doing this? And so when Jesus gets the disciples back to him, he asks them this question. He says, who do they say that I am? Remember? And they start giving the CNN poll. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Which to any of us, that's a great compliment. Could you imagine if somebody said you're just like Elijah the prophet? You think, dude, you're awesome. Thanks. But to Jesus, that's no compliment. So Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, wait a minute. You guys have been with me for two years. You've seen me raise the dead. You've seen lepers healed. You've seen the blind see. You've seen the deaf hear. You've seen paralytics rise up, click their heels and run. And then he says, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter speaks up. And he gives the greatest profession of faith in the Gospels. And he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. And then he said this, Upon this rock I will build my church. Meaning, Peter, the confession that you just made, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon that rock, that statement, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not. I'm utterly fascinated by that statement. Because today in 2007, the church should not even exist in the world. There's no reason for the church to exist. When you look at the encumbrances and the barriers that the church had to overcome, that it is based on a, on a, on a man, a Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be God, which was blasphemy to the Jew, who was crucified in open shame, which means that he had the curse of God on his life. That man suddenly sparked something in these other 12 that sparked something in 70 that sparked something in 500 and this thing began to spread and it broke out of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and eventually the outermost parts of the earth. By 90 AD, there's a church in India. How in the world does anybody account for a church that was persecuted, people were burned and crucified upside down and beheaded. Bibles later at one period were began to be burned so that no one would read the Scriptures. And yet today, the church is thriving and more powerful than ever when you look around the world. Uh, some of you heard the story of Voltaire, the French deist. He actually, through his writings, he was so confident that his writings would finally put an end to Christianity that he said by the end of his life, Christianity as we know it would be virtually obsolete. And when Voltaire died, the church bought his house and converted it into a Bible printing factory. Isn't that great? Isn't that just the way God works? That the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the greatest institution in the world. When I was at Starbucks, I ran into this man. He was an older man. He would put in over 40 years with this industrial company. I don't remember the name. And we're talking. He said, yeah, man, this company's been around since 1895. I went, wow, that's a, that's a long time. And he asked me what I did. I said, well, I've been with an organization that's been around since 33 A.D. <laughs> he didn't get it yet. He goes, you're kidding. I said, yeah, 2,000 years later, and we're bigger and stronger than we've ever been. He said, who do you work for? And I said, I'm in the ministry. He goes, oh, man. But I said, it's true. 2,000 years later, Rome, uh, the Roman civilization, the Egyptian civilization, the Sumerian. Do you all know a Babylonian? Who knows a Babylonian around here? Anybody know a Sumerian? Anybody know an Assyrian? Why not? These are huge, huge civilizations. They have come and they've gone. Companies come and they go. Kings rise and they fall. Nations rise and they fall. But the one thing that lasts forever is the Word of God and the people of God because Christ promised that the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. And gang, that's what you and I are a part of. 
It is the greatest divine institution in the world. And we get the privilege of, of being a part of this thing in a local assembly where we get to shine our light before men and women. And we get to, we get to affect change in the lives of people. Is there anything greater than that? I can't think of anything greater than affecting change in the lives of men and women around the world. So, I want to encourage you guys. Keep coming on Sundays. If you're, if you're just visiting and you're visiting elsewhere, wherever you decide on, you put your tentacles deep wherever you end up. And you serve and you be a part of this wonderful place called the church. If you've made your decision to be here at Rock Point, then you serve with us. You serve deep. We've got all kinds of things that we, we have for people to do in this church. So let's serve deep and honor God through this great institution called the church. Amen?